You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nafa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. So I was driving to and from Makola literally every day. So I would go when I have the clients, I would take their measurements. I was taking the measurements myself, patients, and I would take the measurements, come back, come and make the clothes. When it's time to give it to them, I'll go back. I was driving a Tata at that time. And I would drive to the market, go and do the fitting. If there's tweaking, I have to come back. Hey there, you're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars. I am Nafa. And on this episode, how Sheila Gabra, an architectural graduate, has been able to build an iconic fashion brand, gotten featured on CNN, thus making Shiba Bina a force to reckon with within the fashion industry in Africa. What makes this podcast even more interesting? Sheila has no formal training in sewing or tailoring. Enjoy. So welcome to the studio, Sheila. Thanks, Nifa. How are you feeling? I feel good. You feel good? I feel good. Awesome. What was it like growing up as a child? Well, I feel like I had a typically normal childhood. I come from a family of five. So that's my parents and then two sisters, two Mm -hmm. younger sisters. I'm the oldest. Okay. And I went to primary and GSS in Christ the King and secondary school in Wesley Girls High School. And then I did uni at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. Okay. All right. In Wesley Girls High School, what did you study? I studied science. Science. Yeah. While growing up, you wanted to be a doctor? Actually, growing up, I wanted to be an architect. And I feel like a lot had to do with the fact that my dad is an architect. I mean, apart from the fact that I was actually in touch with my artistic side, I like things to do with arts and crafts. But my dad also probably contributed to the dream of becoming an architect because my dad is an architect. And I feel like he he geared me in that direction. Yeah. But then for some reason, when I was going to Wesley Girls, I actually applied for general arts. Okay. To sort of follow your architectural dream. But then right when I got there, I was thinking, "Hmm, what if maybe when I'm done, it's not exactly architecture I want to do. So maybe I want to do something science or I want to be a doctor, you know, pharmacist. So I actually took an exam. Okay. Because there were a few slots left for science students. Okay. And there were other people who wanted to switch from general arts to science. So we took an exam. And then I was selected from the batch that took the exam. And then I joined the science class. Was that like your dream come true? How did you feel about that? I was really excited. I mean, until I actually started the course, you know, I was like, I've just didn't ask. <laughs> Why was it a difficult thing? Yeah, what it about was really it? difficult. I mean, science was just hard. Everything about it was hard from chemistry to physics to everything, elective math. So coming from a school like Christ the King, where... I probably was easily one of the top students in my class. Right. And then you come to a school like Wesley Girls, where everybody in your class was a top student from their class. Right. I mean, there are bosses and there are bosses. <laughs> so you meet people who are super intelligent and they make you look like you have a small brain. And everything was competitive, so competitive. I remember it was really difficult for me in my first year because 
I was acing my exams and classes from Christ the King, and I was a star student. And you come to Basic Girls, and you are just trying to stay on the surface <laughs> and not drown. But yeah, yeah. we made it. Yeah. We made how it. Did, how did you make it? How did you overcome that? That challenge, that initial challenge. I mean, in a school like Wesley Girls, I mean, you you always hear, before I went to Gehe, okay, okay, Wesley, students from Wesley Girls are extremely smart. And it is a fact. It is true. It's not a myth. It's not a myth. Like, girls were extremely smart in my set. I mean, in the whole school, very brainy girls. So you can't play because if you play, you fail. And they are going to push your name on the board because they will post the list. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was actually like a board with names Oh, there was people. a board. There was a list yeah, <laughs> for positions in okay. the class. The entire know? class? Yes, in the entire class. I remember they did that probably about three times when I was in Gehe. Oh, wow. But even apart from that, nobody wants to fail. Yeah, of course So not. then you see everybody excelling and you have to, to sit your butt down and study so that you can also make it. You know, you don't want to be the one failing in school. You don't want to have your name on that board. Of course not. <laughs> So I feel like even with those kind of habits, because all your mates are studying, you have to study as well so that you can make it. So what was your what was your strategy? I feel like in Gehe, it was my set of friends in my class. I mean, they were all really smart. I had a friend called Issy. Issy just literally sits to the class. You would even think she's not paying attention, but then she's paying attention. Prep time, she's not even really studying. But when we do the test the next day, it is at 99% because they don't give 100. Okay. So ideally, you go 100%. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? And then you're like, okay, you, you need to like... You need to sit your butt down. You need to sit your butt down. <laughs> A lot in life has to also do with the company that you keep. Right. So if you stick with people who are serious, you tend to be serious. You tend to pick good habits yeah. from people. So... Basically, that was what helped me yeah. in Wesley Girls. So two and a half years, you saw through Wesley Girls, made it, came out, science student, with your grades as you wanted. And then you moved on to KNUSD, yes. right? I studied architecture. Architecture. Oh, okay. So you went back to your actual I plan. did. Mm. I did. I stuck to the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and what was I that did. like? It, I feel like my journey in tech was turbulent. Okay. So there were good times and there were bad times. There were extremely low times and there were high times. Yeah. I was in school for six years. Oh, wow. So I did okay. four years for my bachelor's. Okay. And then two years postgraduate. Okay. And um, that's because architecture is a, is a six-year course or? It is a six-year course. If you're going to be like a recognized architect, okay. you would have to do all six years. Okay. And then take the exam, the GIX. Right. So it was hard. And especially because you see other people in other courses who are like living life so easy. From the first year, you would have like lecturers coming to your class at 2 a.m. to check rule. Oh, wow. So then basically, if you're not in the class at 2 a.m. when the lecturer comes, which is very random. So it's not like, okay, he's coming on Mondays and Wednesdays. Yeah. He just picks any random day and then appears in the studio. So if you're not there on the day that the lecturer comes and then you're finally like presenting your your work, you could be filled because you could say, okay, I didn't see you in the studio working. So someone else could have done your work for you. Wow. So we literally spent a lot of nights in the studio because studio forms like, was it 40 or 60% of your total grade? So we are in the studio till like 5 a.m. because you can't leave when it's like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. You're afraid of yeah. getting attacked by yeah. robbers or anything. Yeah. We're yeah. girls. I mean, I'm a girl. Yeah. So we used to leave maybe like at 5 a.m. When there's a bit of sunlight. When there's yeah. a bit of sunlight, there's a bit of activity. Yeah. And then you go to your room and you're supposed to make your eight o'clock class in wow. three hours. Wow. 
So, I mean, you thought you had sort of left that life behind, gehe, signs, having to, you know, prep and all of that. But no, you came yeah, to- but then you came right back. I mean, it was like we were still in like secondary school, yeah, basically. And the lectures were really hard on us, you know, and the course. So, I mean, I remember we started, when we started, we we're probably about almost 200 in my class. By the time we finished, I don't think we were even... Probably like 70 students left. Oh, wow. They changed courses or... Some people changed courses after first year. Some people changed courses after second year because they still had... They were still finished with us. Yeah. And then a lot of people were repeated. It was... It was was turbulent. It was very turbulent. (laughs) It was was very turbulent. But you you sailed through the six years. Thankfully. Yeah. But you have to put in a lot of work because if you don't, you'll be failed. Because you have juries where you stand there and you defend your work. Okay. So there are different lecturers sitting, listening to you, presenting your work, and everybody's hurling questions at you. Your work has to be foolproof, and you have to make sure that you've not you've left no stones unturned. And even with group work, you still have to be consistent because you go and stand there as a group. They can single you out and ask you to answer a question. Yeah. Even though if you probably didn't take part in the group work. <laughs> yeah, that they'd be found wanting. <laughs> You know, so yeah, I probably would have stopped the course. Okay, but what kept you going? I think the year I enjoyed the most was my first year in tech. Because our lecturer then was really interesting. Okay. He made the course actually interesting for us. We enjoyed the projects that we're doing, even though they were difficult. Right. We enjoyed it. But after that, everything became like much more difficult. People lost interest in the course. Mm. And... To be honest, I probably would have just changed courses or stopped to do something else. But I just didn't want to be seen as the person who failed. Yeah. I don't like to fail. Yeah. So a great part of me or a great part of my motivation came from the fact that I didn't want to be seen as someone who failed because I couldn't do the course. Right. So I stayed and then I finished. Right. You mentioned yeah. you have to take an exam to be like a recognized architect. Have you done, I didn't done take that? It. You didn't take yeah, that. My okay. mom was in my ear about going to take the GIA exam. I was like, look, I finished the six years. Yeah. I've gotten my certificate. That's it. At that time, by the time I finished, actually by my like fourth year in tech, I knew I wanted to do something related to fashion. I wasn't exactly sure, but I just knew that I had an interest in fashion. How did that come about? I'm trying to piece to be together. Honest, I've yeah. always been interested in fashion. And even in school, it showed. Because some of my lectures after school were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. <laughs> so generally in like a course like architecture, yeah. most of the students were not that fashionable. Okay. I mean, the course was intensive. You don't even have time to be fashionable. You don't have time to, to be, draw to be eyebrows. Honest. Yeah. <laughs> But I still drew my eyebrows, you know, and I still dressed up for for class with my matching bag and my matching sandals or whatever. And even to some extent, that even actually got me in trouble in school. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I was picked on by some lecturers because they said, I mean, you spend too much time dressing. Mm. I wasn't failing my courses, Mm, you know, but you have like a general perception of architecture students who come to school looking like you've been hit by a bus or you know, drained. Yeah, yeah. But my fashion was important to me. Yeah. So I come dressed up, but that didn't sit well with a lot of lectures. Okay. I, I remember my dad was called. Oh. Oh, yeah. A, a lecturer called my dad. I didn't even like the lecturers to know that my dad was an architect. Yeah. And it, my life was easier. <laughs> till the le- lecturer will find out that, oh, your dad's an architect. And then 
The worst that. <laughs> I remember my dad was called and he was told that, yeah, your daughter is always changing her hairstyles and always dressing up. And I remember my dad was like, okay, but is she failing? I was about to ask. Yeah, I was about and to ask. And I wasn't, ask. you know, but yeah, so that, that's over. <laughs> <laughs> but that was all like the beginning of, you know, you knowing that you wanted to get into the yes. industry that you're currently in. By the time I was now. done with tech. I just felt like I did my national service at an architectural firm for a year. And then I just felt like, you know what, let me just embark on this journey. I was clueless, Mm. to be honest. This was in what year? I did my national service. Okay. So when I started, it was probably about 2012. And I was clueless because I look back right now and I feel like all I had that time was a will. I had a will to start my fashion dream. Um, I remember when I was in school, I used to look at a lot of work from Aisha Christie Brown. And she was actually one of the people I used to look at and be inspired from. Because Aisha is my mate. Like, we're mates in school. And she just made it look so effortlessly easy. So I felt like, wow, like, I was actually really inspired by her. I used to ask her a few questions. I used to, like, follow her work. Okay. And so that inspired me. So by the time I was starting, honestly, I mean, I have up until now, zero formal training in fashion. I was, I was A lot of ask. people don't know that. Okay. So I don't sew. Okay. You know, I'm very good with my hands. I'm very good with when it comes to like even beading clothes, beadwork, when it comes to adding maybe accents to clothes or okay. beautifying them. I'm really good with my hands, but I don't actually cut. I took a course sometime last year. But it was so busy with trying to manage both. Yeah. I have a, like a, an idea of how to cut patterns, but yeah. I really did not delve that deep into it. So yes, I could cut like a pair of trousers or, but with my day-to-day activities with my tailors, I don't cut. I have people who cut. I have staff like segregated for that kind of job. Yeah, I mean, you definitely didn't start out with having your tailors and having your staff. Definitely not. Because you mentioned all you had was a will. All I had was a will. So that was literally what, what I didn't even have cash. I did not even that? have cash. <laughs> like, I mean, my mom just wanted me to go and just write the GIA exam. That was all that was on her mind. So out of that is when you were sort of beginning to see yourself getting into the fashion industry. Right. Did you save up money from national service to start? I mean, how am I even in on national service? Yeah. I was really low on cash. I didn't have that much. Mm. When what, I what did you need money for, actually, to start the fashion industry? What did you? What I mean, basically, I have zero. I have the porch of my house. <laughs> and so nothing. You have to buy machines. You have to buy a cutting table from scissors to pins to needles. Yeah. All those little things added up. It's still a, ch- a chunk of money at that time when you're not really working and you don't really have anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember initially when I started, I had told my aunt, my dad's sister about it. And at that time, I think she gave me 2,000 CDs. Okay. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a lot of money, yeah. you know? Yeah. 2,000 Ghana CDs. It's still a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> and so at that time, I purchased two sewing machines. I wasn't even able to buy a finishing, a neat name machine. And then I paid a carpenter to make two large tables. Then I bought stuff like the needles, the threads, scissors, brown paper for pattern cutting. Yeah. 
like all the little things that but how you did need. you i mean no background in this industry how did you know you needed a brown paper for cutting how i feel you like i just had needed? the basic even in tech i had a seamstress who used to sew i would draw my design and i'll go and give it to her and say do it like this so basically with that one i had I, I had some knowledge. sort of knowledge about okay. what was needed. And then I had my first tailor. So with the things I didn't know, mm. he told me, okay, you need to buy this or mm. you need to buy that. How did you find him? It was by word of mouth. Okay. I asked someone who asked someone and then they brought me a French tailor. Okay. But he stayed a week. <laughs> and then <laughs> he was gone. And then I was back to square one. But why did he last just a week? I don't even know. Like... Probably. Is it like you didn't have any money to pay him his salary? I don't even think it was to do with that. But I was a startup. Okay. And I'm sure even he felt the pressure. Okay. Like we were two blind mice. You thought you were joking. Yeah. You thought I was probably like, oh, this guy's kidding. Small girl, (laughs) you know. So he was there for a week. He didn't even tell me he wasn't coming back. I came to work and he wasn't there. And I was calling him. He never answered. I don't even know what I did between that time and when I got... Like everything is like it's like a blur. It's like a blur. But I know soon after that, I was able to speak to someone who used to bring in French tailors. Okay. So he brought me two French tailors. Okay. One was Togolese and one was Ivorian. Okay. So here I am with my basic French from Christ the King. Oh my goodness. Exactly. So it's like okay, comment appel to you. Okay, like I don't know how I did it. So I remember even using the French translator on my phone because these people spoke only French. So there was a language barrier, but for some reason, we were able to communicate. Yes. Communication was not the easiest. We were able to still communicate and get work done. Yeah. Okay, Sheila. So you have your two more or less permanent French speaking staff, Mm -hmm. right? And you already had your sewing tables and your your two tables that the carpenter made for you. So yeah, you're more or less set. Yes. For, for business. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. how did you get your first customer? To be honest, I don't even know how I was able to convince her. Mm. But I remember my first customer is a lady called Equa okay. Okran. And Equa, for some reason, she just believed in me. How did she find out that you were actually into this business? I don't even remember. I probably saw her somewhere and I said, oh, I'm starting and then... She's it's like, like let's, do this. let's do this. I mean, I th- now I think she's crazy for giving me a chance then <laughs> because I wouldn't have given myself a chance. Yeah. But then, yeah, that was good. That actually helped me to be more confident because the dresses that we made for her, I mean, it needed a little tweaking here and there. Yeah. But then she loved the clothes and they did look good. Yeah. You know, so I remember after that, most of my clientele came from Makola. Okay. So I had a friend that I used to shop from her fabric shop she used to sell african prints and i was sewing for her Mm. so it's like when you sew for her she wears the dress and she says oh my friend in another shop said she liked my dress come Mm -hmm. and take her measurements Mm -hmm. and you know the makola women they don't leave their space so you would have to go yeah so i was driving to and from makola literally every day so i would go when i have the clients i would take their measurements i was taking the measurements myself okay (laughs) i would take the measurements come back come and make the clothes when it's time to give it to them, I'll go back. I was driving a Tata at that mm. time. Small, convenient Tata. <laughs> <laughs> the Tata was called Tatashi. <laughs> and I would drive to the market, go and do the fitting 
if there's tweaking, I have to come back to do alterations and then go wow. back. I mean, I don't even, I'm positive I was working at a loss because I don't know how I was able to do all this with fuel back and forth yeah. and making yeah. a decent yeah. profit. Yeah. But. Because you weren't charging that much. How much were you charging like averagely for the clothes? I think I was charging like 50 Ghana CDs for a dress. <laughs> 50 Ghana CDs. Wow. But I don't even remember any sense of frustration or sadness. Yeah. I just remember being happy to be doing something that I was passionate about. And so every time I hear, oh, there's somebody who likes your dress, somebody wants to make a dress, I'm like on it. I was just so excited. (laughs) And I wake up in the morning. I remember every time I wake up, maybe I'll go to my dad's room. Maybe you give me some small money for fuel. And then I'll say, oh, I'm going to the market. I'll be back. And my dad used to look at me like, now when I look back, I feel like he was amazed at my zeal and how dedicated I was to what I was doing. Yeah. Because, I mean, you standing in the background, it didn't really look like I was doing anything, to be honest. Yeah. But I was so dedicated to what I was doing. So I'll go to town. By 6 a.m., I've left the house. By 7, I'm in Makola because of traffic. And I'll do what I need to do. I come back. I come and deal with the two workers that I had. Speak my two by four (laughs) French. And then that's how it was. And that's how Chibabina was birthed. Wow. You know, I know people look at Chibabina now and all you see is, okay, an established brand and it looks nice and it looks perfect. Yeah. But coming from me, who is the, who is the Chibabina brand? I'm telling you that it was not a walk in the park. There were so many times that I. You wanted to give up? I wanted to give up. But I was just like, but how can you give up? You know, okay, give up and go and do back to architecture. I, I don't know about that. I don't know if I really, I'm ready to go back to architecture. But I was just so passionate about it. I had a passion for it. And I feel like that's what just made the days and the nights turn to days, made the time pass by. There were times when, you know, tailors would disappoint you because you remember, I don't sew. Yeah. All right. So Sheila, you've sewn for your first client, Equa, mm-hmm. and you've met Claudia. Yes. Who supplies you with fabric and you sew for Claudia and now Claudia. And now my main clientele is Makola women. Yeah, other Makola women. Yes. At that point in time, did you still feel like I have arrived? Oh, no, this no, 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 yeah. no. So what was that moment for you that made you know that she by Bina, this is it. I can actually do this. Well, I feel like after sewing for the Makola women for a while, mm-hmm. Then I actually had people, like random people who would call me and say, oh, I hear you're sewing. Okay. Um, can I come and make a dress? And that was extremely fulfilling and exciting because it's like, okay, people have actually heard yeah. that I'm sewing. Outside of your circle. Outside of my Makola women's circle. Mm. There are stars. And it's like, so, okay, I'm doing something good. You know, I'm doing something good. So with that, you still get spasms of like um, energy to mm. continue with what you're doing. I don't like to fail. I keep saying this. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's generally a good thing. It's generally a good thing. But then it puts a lot of pressure on you because I don't want to fail. I was scared. There were moments when I felt like, okay, so what happens when my tailor ups and leaves? Mm. Mm. I don't know how to sew. What do I do then? Mm. And I got a very good tailor. And it was the first time I remember there was a lady who called me Sandy. She was styling Jocelyn Dumas. Okay. And then she said, oh, we want you to make a dress for Jocelyn. Okay. And I feel like that was when I was most confident in what I had started. So let's try and get the years in between this. Mm -hmm. Your Makola woman growth period was around what year? 
when I started, 2012. 2012, okay. And this call to SOFOR, Jocelyn Doma, was around what time? Probably less than a year. Oh, wow. If anything, maximum a year after. Okay. So yeah. about 2013. Yes. Wow. About 2013. And we made the first dress for Jocelyn. I remember we made a, a knee-length dress for her. I had just joined Instagram at that time. Mm. I didn't have a Shiba Bina account. It was my personal account, okay. Tinky. And I remember she posted it and people followed me, yeah. you know, because she tagged me in it. Yeah. And then you have more calls coming through. And then we made a black gown, mm. which she wore to the AMVCs. And that was like amazing. There were amazing reviews. She trended like, I hadn't experienced that kind of trending. <laughs> and the dress fit like a glove and it was beautiful. And I remember I probably made about 30 more of those dresses <laughs> from clients who ordered it. Referrals. And so I feel like to the international world, mm. so more of out of Ghana, mm. Shiba Bina was now known after Jocelyn wore the dress to the AMVCs. And then that's when we got more calls and then it just went upward from, from there. there. Okay, so after you've made the first knee-length dress for her, I guess mm -hmm. she must have loved it since, or Sandy. She loved, loved it. it. So she and came then back she came again. Back. Okay, awesome. And that was exciting. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw it, I was just trying to keep my cool, like, yeah, you know, keep your cool. Don't <laughs> act like some starstruck person. Yeah. But it was exciting. She was in my living room. We didn't have a fitting room. We didn't have any office, nothing. The porch was the workshop. Yeah. God bless my parents because they were patient. <laughs> the porch was the workshop. The dining table was where I used to seat my clients. The guest toilet was the fitting room. Wow. Yeah, so that's where Jocelyn did her first fittings. Wow. It was the guest toilet. And she loved the clothes. I loved her from the time I met her. And from then on, we've been sewing for her. We sew for Jocelyn all the time. Like Jocelyn yeah. can call you 24 hours before her event and we'll fight about it. <laughs> but then we'll still make her dress for her because yeah. she's part of our success story. Like I can't say my success story without mentioning about her. Jocelyn sure. Dumas. I was going to come to that. So this is you. You've gotten one of the renowned celebrities to wear your brand. When you saw this dress for her, did you have to charge her? Or were you thinking, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to actually be out there. So let me give it to her for free. I don't think she paid for her first dress. Okay. Okay. But I know when it comes to paying, Jocelyn has always like been a supporter. Mm. Very supportive. Even when you don't send her the bill, she'll call you and say, hey, send me my bill. She was just really supportive. Because sometimes I found myself maybe sewing for a few other celebrities and they more or less expected the outfits to be on the house, like yeah. for free. Yeah. It's good and bad because, yes, it does bring you the publicity. Mm -hmm. But at that time, you need the money. To pay your bills. You need the money to pay your workers. You need the money to pay your bills. You're paying electricity bills. You need to buy more fabrics. Yeah. So that was a challenge. How did you balance those two? Because, I mean, part of your strategy can be, okay, let me sew for this person for free. Because like you said, publicity is good. It'll bring me more clients. I did some free stuff. Okay. I did some free stuff for some celebrities. Okay. But then after a while, like, you can't do free stuff all the time. Right. So depending on what I do, because especially with the fabrics that I was using, mm -hmm. the fabrics were actually quite expensive. Mm -hmm. I tried not to use 
common laces from town. I used to source my fabrics from Dubai and other countries. So it wasn't that cheap. So I can't do it free, you know. Let's get the growth story because you just mentioned sourcing from Dubai. But initially you used to source your fabrics from the Makala, Makala woman, right? Yes. And that was your regular African prints and all Regular that. African prints and a few laces and a few like stretch fabrics. Okay. And this was for people's orders or were you just making clothes that were there for people to buy? By this time, I had people who were ordering. So in between making clothes for people and then, I mean, my number one client was myself. So I used to make dresses every Sunday when I'm going to church, I'll make a new dress and post it on Instagram. Why, Why would you do that? Well, apart from the fact that I like dressing up, I realized it was good for marketing okay so i would wear a dress and somebody would say oh your dress is lovely and i'll say oh yeah i made it <laughs> you know and then oh are you serious can we have your number it was a very good marketing strategy okay. because every time i wore a dress i would find somebody not that i'll find somebody but someone will come up to me and say oh the dress that you posted yeah can i have that or maybe in a different color or it yeah. was good for marketing yeah. instagram is actually a very very good marketing platform yeah and even at that time, there were not that many people on Instagram, but it worked. Yeah. It did work for me. Where were you getting more of your referrals from? Is it from your social media marketing or more of word of mouth? So initially, it was more of word of mouth. Somebody told their sisters, mothers, wives, uncles. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, it was from Instagram. Hey, guys. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the first part of our conversation with Sheila. Join me for part two where Sheila reviews how at the pinnacle of her success, one single move almost toppled down everything she had worked so hard to build. I'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.